Beloved congregation of the risen Lord, the grass withers and the flowers die, but thus the word of our God, it remains forever and it is worthy of our attention and our devotion. Let us uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Uh, So ends the reading of our God's word at this time. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide in the dark. It is the wisdom and truth that we follow each day. Your word indeed is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. Your word is healing and justice and it is ours to obey. Your word is our understanding of grace and peace and love. And these are the reasons we draw near to it. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Uh, You may be seated.
if someone wanted to know about the resurrection of Jesus and what the Bible has to say about it and why it is important, uh, there is no better chapter in the Bible to send them to. Uh, you thought I was going to say 1 Kings 17. No, it's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, has so much to say about the resurrection in such a short space. It is, it is a work of art. It is truly amazing. And the chapter starts by saying that the resurrection is of first importance. The resurrection is, is not some theory. It's not some incidental idea that Christians can take or leave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day is at the very core of the gospel, the Christian message. You remove it. You take it away. And the Christian faith falls apart. Paul explains what he means. He says this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That's how important the resurrection is. Your hope of heaven, of eternal life, rests on whether or not Jesus Christ is raised. And this, this is because the wages of sin is death. Death is, is what each and every one of us deserves for disobeying God's commands. Jesus came to earth to die in our place, to, to suffer the very punishment that we deserve for our sin and to suffer on our behalf. So if he had his own sin, he would not have been able to suffer for us. He would have had to pay his own debt. His death only serves us if he is perfectly righteous and yet still willing to suffer in our place. His, his death only serves us if he is perfectly righteous without sin and yet still willing to suffer as if he had sinned in our place. And the resurrection is proof that he had no sin of his own. It's proof that he did everything necessary to save us. It's, his resurrection is proof that he has the right to give eternal life to those who belong to him. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 means when it says, The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became the life-giving spirit. He has the right to give life to those who call upon him for salvation. And so as we look at our text this morning in, in 1 Kings 17, my point is, is going to be simple, and it's this. In the resurrection, Jesus became the life-giver able to give us eternal life as the reward for his perfect life and his willingness to suffer in our place. His ability to give us life is his reward for living a perfect life and for being willing to suffer in our place. 
And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Before Paul says all of what he says about the resurrection, he says that all of it was done in accordance with the scripture. And what he's saying is this, that the Old Testament has been preparing God's people for the resurrection on the third day. It's something that should have been expected, something that should have been anticipated. It should not have been a surprise. And so a few years back, I'm not going to say how many now, I asked the question, it's a simple question, okay, where does the Old Testament tell us that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? And that's where it gets a little interesting. Because on one hand, the answer is nowhere. There is no place in the Old Testament where it says the Messiah, when he comes, will die and be raised on the third day. But on the other hand, the answer to that question is, well, everywhere. Because in the Old Testament, the third day is universally the day of restoration, the day of life-giving, the day of blessing. And so each Easter, I've been taking an opportunity to dive into one of these passages and ask not just how does this anticipate the resurrection on the third day, but also what does it teach us about the resurrection and its importance in our lives? In other words, we're on a many years journey now of explaining what Paul means that Jesus Christ was raised in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. So today we're looking at at the episode uh, in 1 Kings 17 of Elijah raising the son of the widow in Zarephath. Uh, As we look at this, we'll see that that this passage anticipated exactly what the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Elijah here served as a picture of Jesus to come, earning the right to give life to others as the reward for both his righteousness and his willingness to suffer as though he had uh, even though he had done no wrong. And I'll explain what that means. I'm not suggesting for an, a second that Elijah was without sin, but the text presents him suffering not for his sin, but for the sins of others. Now, it's probably not surprising that we would end up in this passage. Uh, The raising of the widow's son uh, in Zarephath is one of the few actual resurrections in the Old Testament. Uh, There were many pictures of resurrection, uh, like uh, Isaac being given back uh, to Abraham on the third day in Genesis 22, which Hebrews says this is a figurative resurrection. Uh, Here... Someone is actually brought back to life from the dead. And while it's not on the third day, it was on the third time that Elijah stretched himself out with the child. Or perhaps a better translation would actually be that Elijah stretched himself out or laid down with the child three beats or to the count of three. Either way, uh, the number three is once again uh, tied to resurrection in the Old Testament. And so it's natural to spend some time here as we consider how the Old Testament prepared us for the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. 
Now there's a lot going on in these final verses of 1 Kings 17 that we read. Uh, God has sent Elijah to Zarephath, a town in Sidon, Israel's uh, northern neighbor. Uh, if you go up along the, the Mediterranean Sea, Sidon's just above Israel. Uh, and when Elijah arrived at the town, he saw the woman and he asked her for some water. And she went to bring him water, and then he asked her for food. And she informed him that what she was about to cook was the very last of the food that she had. And she knew that after it was gone, she and her son would soon starve to death. And so this was their last meal that they planned to have. And Elijah told her not to be afraid that her flour and her oil would not run out until the drought that was ravaging the land came to an end. All that Elijah said came true. Uh, For some time after that, her flour and her oil never ran out. And, And God provided for this woman and her son, even though she wasn't a Jew, she was not a Hebrew by nationality. But providing food could not stop the inevitable. Death comes to all, and for this boy, it came sooner than for most. And so by the time we get to verse 17, we find a grieving mother, heartbroken over her son, And in verse 18, we're we're given a glimpse into her heart. When her son dies, she says to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In other words, this woman interprets the death of her son through her own guilt and shame. She's so aware of her sins that she assumes the only reason Elijah could be there is to punish her. She's crushed, absolutely crushed by by her, her guilt and shame. And her only possible interpretation of what has happened and her son's death is that God must be punishing her for all of her failings. Perhaps you know exactly how she feels. So overcome with your own sins, so overcome with your own failings, that every time something goes wrong, your only assumption is, God must be punishing me. God must be upset with me. She reminds me of another woman one that Jesus would meet years later. Uh, He too would ask that woman for some water. She too wasn't a Jew. And she too was a single woman, crushed by her guilt and shame, an outcast who believed that no one could ever love her. As Elijah had done with that widow, Jesus told her that he could supply her with water that never ran out. In John's Gospel, she's meant to be a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. She is meant to be a reflection to us of what we are like and how the Lord provides for us and loves us. 
in women like these and their children. The Bible wants us to see the church and her members guilty, yes, before a holy God, crushed, yes, with guilt and shame, hanging on by a thread, sensing death is close, and yet still loved, still cared for, still provided for. Because the question is always, what hope is there for people like this? When what we see in 1 Kings 17 is that, is that hope, our hope, is in the love of God. And our hope is in resurrection. For those who belong to the Lord, death can't have the final word. Elijah didn't rebuke the woman. He didn't put a finger in her face. He didn't condemn her. He simply took the boy upstairs, cried out to the Lord, and laid down with him three times, or like I said, probably a better translation would be three beats or to the count of three. And the boy's life returned. And he gave this child back to his mother, and she knew She knew that Elijah had been sent by God. She knew that the God who had created the universe knew her by name, knew her pain, and he cared for her. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful, beautiful passage fitting to meditate on while we consider the resurrection. And yet there's more to the story. There are are some details that come in the first seven verses that we haven't read yet that are essential to understanding what's going on in the second part of the passage. And so let's read those first seven verses. 1 Kings 17, verses 1 to 7. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, who was the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook of uh, the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. There had been a dispute going on between Elijah the prophet and Ahab the king of Israel who, kids, if you're learning your Bible history, Ahab was not a good king (laughs) uh, at all. Ahab was leading the people of Israel into sin and Elijah in God's name pronounced judgment on the land he said that until he said so it would not rain 
this drought that the widow was experiencing and enduring was a judgment that Elijah himself had sent. James, in the book of James in the New Testament, he attributes this to Elijah's prayer. Uh, he, he attributes the success of Elijah's prayer to Elijah's righteousness. Let me read what James says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. James is not saying that Elijah was out without sin. Uh, just that he was more righteous than those in that generation. And as such, he, like others before and after him, served as a picture of Jesus who would come and would actually be without sin and to whom judgment was given. And however, as we read the details, we see Elijah, even though he sent this judgment, is not safe from the very judgment he sent on Israel. God sent him east, which is historically in the Old Testament the, the place of judgment, banishment, and exile. Uh, God fed him with bread and meat in the wilderness, as he did with Israel when they sinned and were uh, cursed to wander the wilderness for 40 years, kept from entering the promised land. And then even the, the, the blessing of rain was kept for him so that eventually the brook from which he drank dried up. And he grew thirsty. And Elijah suffers with uh, the people, the very curse he had pronounced and sent. It's easy to see how these same realities would come to describe Jesus when he came into this world, though he was righteous and though all judgment had been given to him, he suffered along with everyone else even more so. He too was, was driven into the wilderness and experienced hunger and thirst. He too was mistreated by the leaders of Israel. He too was taken outside of Jerusalem to experience the greatest curse of all, death. And there, dying on the cross... He cried out with Elijah, I thirst. But in John, it's meant to be a, a, an image of the great depths of suffering he went through. And so the other apostles record for us uh, him stating it this way, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't come into this world protected from the curse. He came and he endured it. And so too, before Elijah ever gives life to this child, before he is able to reverse death itself, before he is able to bring hope to Israel, he must first suffer with Israel. He must endure the very curse he has sent. All of this, though he was righteous, all of this because he was willing to bear his own curse with the people he was sent to judge. But the greatest act of love was yet to be seen. When this child died, Elijah was overcome with emotion and he cried out to God. 
and in tears, he laid down with the dead child for a count of three. Elijah's suffering was not complete until he lay down with the dead. It's then and only then that the child's life was restored. And this child's life is the reward for Elijah's willingness to suffer, though he was righteous. Because Elijah was willing to do all of this, he is able to bring this child back from the dead. And what Elijah is meant to teach us is that the people's hope of resurrection rests on the willingness of a righteous judge to suffer with his people and to even lie with them in death to the count of three. And so when 1 Corinthians 15, 45 tells us that Jesus became the life-giving spirit, the life-giver in the resurrection, this is what it's saying. Because he suffered, though he was sinless. Because he endured exile, why have you forsaken me? Because he endured the greatest thirst imaginable. Because he suffered for others, though he had done no wrong. Because he did all of this willingly. He earned the right to give life to those for whom he endured these things. By willingly taking the curse upon himself, he saved them from the curse. And what that means is that his resurrection isn't just about himself, it's about us. If he wasn't sinless, if if he didn't suffer with and for us, if he didn't lay down with us in the grave for three days, and if he didn't rise again, then we are still in our sins. We are still under the curse. And we have no hope. And we of all people are most to be pitied. You see, when Elijah first came to Zarephath, he was able to miraculously provide bread and feed the widow and her son. But that's not really what they needed. Such miracles only postpone death. They don't conquer it, which is proven when the boy died. What they needed was one who could conquer death, who could reverse death. Because then, not even death would be able to keep people from God and his blessing. As Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 15, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If our only hope is the blessing God can give us in this life, this side of the grave, then there's no point. That's why we need Jesus. When he came, he, like Elijah, miraculously provided bread. He fed thousands at a time. But he told people time and time again that that wasn't really what they needed. What they needed was the bread of heaven. They needed one who could turn away judgment for sin. They needed one who could give them eternal life. They needed Jesus. And so it all comes down to the resurrection. The resurrection was proof that Jesus was righteous. 
not more righteous than those around him, but truly righteous, perfectly righteous, without sin. When that righteous one calms and willingly suffers, though innocent, he receives the right to give life. He is the life giver in in whom we have hope. His own resurrection is, is proof that he has done all that was required. His resurrection is, is the assurance that, that he has the right to give life to his own. His resurrection is the proof that we too will be raised and we will enjoy eternal life with him for all eternity in heaven. And that's why Paul says that the resurrection is of first importance. It's not some theory, some incidental idea that Christians can take or leave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day is at the very core of the gospel. If you remove it, the Christian faith falls apart. Because if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your hope of heaven, your hope of eternal life, rests on whether or not Jesus is raised. What's more is that all of this has been done in accordance with the scriptures. This is not a new and novel idea in the days Jesus walked the earth. For centuries, God had been preparing his people for the resurrection on the third day. And in each episode, he taught us something unique and important about why he would be raised and what benefits it would mean for us. Praise God that we are the beneficiaries of his resurrection. The Lord's Supper before us holds these truths out for us beautifully. First, the bread and wine are continual reminders to us uh, of what Jesus was willing to endure to rescue us. Uh, The righteous judge was willing to suffer judgment for our sakes. He laid with us in the grave for three days because that is what it would take to give us life. We use bread and wine to remember his death because there's no grave and no body for us to visit. The tomb is empty. He did not remain under death, but triumphantly rose again and ascended into heaven. This Lord's Supper doesn't just proclaim his death, it proclaims his resurrection. And if he is raised, then our faith is not in vain. And we are not to be pitied because we can be confident that death has no power over us and we will be raised up on the last day and we will be with our Savior for all eternity in heaven. And all of this is because he is risen. 
I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac uh, to come up that we might receive this blessing uh, this morning. Father, we praise you that Jesus is risen, that he was found to be without sin and is victorious over the grave, over sin and over death. We praise you that his resurrection guarantees ours, that we benefit from his willingness to come and suffer for us, though he had done no wrong. We praise you that our faith is not in vain, but we have full confidence that the grave will not have victory over us. And even so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.